This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher filling it with song filling it with song they sound quite mad don't they is Abigail Rose Clark. She's a somatic educator, writer, and artist with an inordinate amount of love for octopuses, the moon, and her extensive collection of anatomy books. She's the creator of the Somatic Tarot and the Body Oracle Deck. She's been teaching the Embodied Life Method throughout the U.S. and internationally since 2014, 
And her new book that we're going to be talking about is Returning Home to Our Body, Reimagining the Relationship Between Our Bodies and the World. So Abigail, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You say that we're all creations of relationship and everything we do is linked in myriad ways to everything and everyone around us in a continual ongoing process. And from the title of your book, what do you mean by reimagining the relationship between our bodies and the world? Yeah. So this idea that many of us have been cultured into of the individual as being not only important, but possible is something that I'm pushing back on. And what I mean by that is not that I am you know, merging with you, we're not the same. We have our own individual qualities. We have our own individual experiences, but there's no such thing as the isolated individual, meaning my life cannot be removed completely from the world in which I inhabit. And then not only that, but I am a multicellular organism. So what are we even saying if we're saying that, that we are an individual? I'm certainly... I'm certainly aware that I am Abigail, but my body is made of trillions of cells that then have gathered themselves into tissues and organs and systems. I am more an ecosystem than an isolated individual, but we get taught to think of ourselves, many of us, as machines or, you know, to think of ourselves as this one isolated part of either a product or a puzzle. And I'm urging us to remember that we are all in these very intimate relationships with place and with each other. And that heightens our responsibility, but it also heightens our sense of belonging. So right now we're in such a troubled state, right? We, I mean, not right now, but we are all, many of us are grappling with the extent of the troubles of the world in ways that maybe we haven't done before. And that can be overwhelming. And in some ways it, it is, but there's also this deep support that comes in remembering that we are made of relationships and that we are constantly in relationships, that there's no such thing as being completely and truly alone in a world like this one. So that's what I'm hoping to offer in both the title and then also in the work of the book and also just the work that I offer in the world. So how do you work with people in that way? to give people an experiential sense of that experience, particularly for people who may not have that sense of the interconnection and interrelatedness of everything in the world? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. So in the book, I'm going through various different ideas of how we might explore it. Things like finding ourselves mirrored in nature, not to say that we are exactly like you know, our brains might look a little bit like a walnut, but that's not to say that brains and walnuts are the same, but just to say that we can find ourselves mirrored in the natural world. And that right there can enliven our sense of awe and curiosity, which inherently feels better than despair and isolation. So that's one way. And people who read the book are going to find that that's, that's the bulk of the, you know, almost 300 pages of the book. But when I'm working with people one-on-one -on -one, or when I teach groups and also in the book, I offer exercises where we might turn to an exploration of something as basic as, let's say, gravity. So gravity 
you know, we get taught in like eighth grade science class that gravity pulls us down to the earth, right? That it's this force that, that anchors us here, but it's not just a downward pull. Later on, we might learn in physics and Newtonian physics that there's also something called the normal force, that there is this equal amount of push up from the whatever we are resting on as there is that pull down from the atmosphere and the pull of gravity on everything on the planet. So while, you know, I was not a science like science has been really hard for me to study. It definitely, you know, made my eyes spin more than once, but it felt truly profoundly comforting when I started to practice in my own body, this way of relating to the earth as a force that moves through me so that when I'm sitting here right now, I'm sitting on a chair. And so I can just mistakenly think of myself as just here, or I might, you know, be peripherally aware that I'm on a chair, but I can let my body release its own weight. I can release my own weight into the chair, which is then supported by the floor, which is then, you know, this is a one story home. It's then right there is the earth waiting to hold me. The architecture of the home is meant to allow these forces to move through the house and up into my body, the architecture of the chair as well, the architecture or, or physiology of my own body allows me to experience that force moving through me as well. I can release my body into the earth and find that sense of unconditional support. And when I do that, now I can both soften. I don't have to brace myself quite as hard. I don't have to hold myself quite as firmly together. And I can receive this depth of support that is unconditional and it's not going to change in that fickle way that humans sometimes do change our emotions or our relationships. This is pretty steady, so I can trust it. And that feels like an invaluable gift in a world that is so full of so much change and violence and destruction that I can trust that the earth will hold me if I release my weight into it. I love what you're saying about being supported and, and being able to trust that the earth will support us. And I like the way that relates to the sense that we're all connected and influencing each other. And this is one example, one dimensional example of how that works. Yeah. And so, whereas the table of the chair has a finite amount of support to offer, the earth has like a nearly infinite amount of support that it can offer. If I lay my body on the ground, I can trust that I can be held. Obviously, there's situational moments where that's not going to be true, right? If I'm lying on a rotting branch, for example, I might break through that. So I'm not trying to, you know, gloss over these situational moments where this isn't going to be true. But I am trying to guide us to remember that there is a sense of support that we can release into, that I'm not just going to drift off into space, that my body has this very trustworthy support that I can release into. And when I do that, I will find myself supported. So there is a way in which our bodies can be unconditionally or at least nearly unconditionally supported by the world around us that most of us either never learned or have forgotten, right? But we can, we can remember that. And in doing that, there's a softness that comes where now I'm not just sort of floating in space and feeling afraid of, of what might come because at least I can trust that I am held where I am. That's been a profound shift for me. 
And I've seen it be a profound shift for others. So it's a it's a main tenet of my work. And that's an experience that we have in our bodies quite directly in our bodies. I mean, that that's a somatic experience. It's not a that's not an intellectual thing, although we can make an intellectual thing out of it. Right, exactly. And I think most of us have been trained to think with the mind first, right? To like approach things from a mental place first. So I try to make sure that, you know, I'm being as clear as possible and giving the mind something that it can trust. But ultimately, you're right. It's something that the body feels. And once it's an embodied experience, it's sort of like the mind doesn't need to pick it apart quite so much, right? It's just this is something now that the body knows. And that's a really beautiful thing as well. Yeah. Could you talk about your interest and even what you call an obsession with the stories of the world? Mm, yeah. So when I call it an obsession, I'm borrowing a phrase from Octavia Butler, the black science fiction writer, who talked about how any obsession can be a positive obsession if it's harnessed correctly, if it's moving you in a, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially if it's moving you in a direction of something generative and creative. So the stories of the natural world as an only child growing up in the country have been a place of curiosity and community for me. So that I could go, you know, I remember begging my mom for a microscope when I was a little kid. I think I was maybe like nine years old and she gave it to me. And then suddenly pond water became just this experience of being just surrounded by so much life, right? And so the ways that the natural world, I don't want to use the word works because that lines it up with the language of machines, but the ways that the natural world exists and it's sort of you know, continual unfolding has been a place of inspiration and comfort and community for me since I can remember. And so it feels very soothing to give my attention to that rather than to, you know, a whole plethora of other things that are always pulling for my attention. <laughs> like this world is always trying to get me to think about something else. And I do have a mind that can get a little bit pulled into something. So I try and guide it to being pulled into these stories of the natural world rather than obsessive stories about other things. Uh -huh. Yeah. And that relates to that beautiful sense of awe and curiosity that comes, especially when we're young. And could you talk about how that connects to our sense of being in our bodies, that kind of experience? of awe and the willingness to not know? Yeah. So I remember sitting when talking with a friend when I was in the process of writing this book where he asked me, you know, why, why this book, right? Such a, such a basic question. And it really came down to this realization that, you know, for me, it really is about the fact that awe and curiosity feel better than isolation and despair. I'm not trying to offer solutions to the complex problems that we're facing, but I think that awe and curiosity and a sense of awe and curiosity about these physical bodies, it, it feels better. And so if I consider, you know, when I was a kid and I learned, I was learning anatomy and physiology for the first time and learning the parts and pieces is sort of these isolated bits, more similar to like the bones were more like scaffolding and the heart was a pump it sucked a lot of the joy out of it because now it was just memorizing and thinking of myself as sort of this kind of really interesting robot. And also I grew up in the eighties and nineties. So 
this idea of like the robotic revolution was definitely, you know, in a lot of people's minds. And it just was this sort of feeling like, oh, well, I guess that's just as soon as we can make a robot move like us, I guess that's just that. And it took a lot of the joy out of it. But when I approached anatomy and physiology later in life, through the help of some of my great somatic teachers like Patty Townsend and Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, who developed body mind centering. And now suddenly there was this sense of awe imbued into it. And now suddenly it wasn't just that, oh, my heart's a pump and it goes through this cycle and, you know, memorize this for the test. It was this almost, I want to say, rapture at feeling and exploring how that movement can be expressed through my own body, you know, through dance, through yoga, through even just the way I walk across the room. If I'm aware of how my body is, if I'm aware of the sort of intricacies of my body, it will shift the ways that I move or this way that I can pick up that same cup of coffee from my desk and bring it to my lips. It draws my attention in, in a way that feels so much better than just sort of moving through life in a complicated massive parts, right? So awe and curiosity create possibilities, but they also create a sense of belonging, I think. And that's what I was feeling like I was lacking for so much of my life. And that's what came back when I started to find awe and curiosity in the actual function of my own physiology. So it sounds like what you're talking about is bringing a much greater sense of presence to our experience much, again, reflecting back on childhood when when we were inspired and awed by the world in a way that in a way it's sort of like a momentary obsession with what is directly in front of us right here right now yeah exactly i mean i love i'm not a parent but i'm very fortunate to be a godmother and an auntie to a good number of amazing little kiddos and i love being out in the natural world with them where you know we just had ice out here in Western Washington and my friend's kid was just, who's almost three was just enraptured by the ice, by being able to crunch the ice, by being able to see the shapes of the water as it froze, just so much joy in that. And so what I find is that it's not only about finding the joy of being in a body and being in the natural world, although that is enough, but also you know, when we're thinking about, you know, when we're thinking about how these systems and structures that we have been cultured into, how they don't work, right? One is, I think it's helpful to remember that these systems like capitalism, like feudal war states, that they are the result of human imagination. Ursula K. Le Guin, I quote her in the book where she talks about how capitalism can feel inevitable, but so do the divine right of kings. And so we have to remember that many of these systems that we're facing, if not all, they are the result of human imagination and they have now created very real effect. But rather than getting stuck in the feeling like there's nothing else but this, and also rather than feeling like, oh, but what else could even be possible? I can now turn to my body and with that sense of awe and curiosity, consider how the body might offer models for moving forward. An example I give in the book that people seem to like when I share it in talks is that if we think about how, okay, capitalism or the housing market can feel somewhat inevitable. It's just the way it's always been done. But if I'm climbing a mountain and my legs get tired 
and my muscle cells had to apply for a loan of glycogen from the liver, fill out paperwork, have a co-signer, and then face loan rejection, like, you know, a big stamp of loan denied from the banker of the liver, <laughs> that instantly starts to sound ridiculous, right? Because we know that that's not how it works. So right there, we're shown how this is an idea that's been imposed upon us. And rather than thinking, oh, well, what else could be possible? We can turn to the body and to the natural world of which the body is a part and think, okay, well, here are ways that the natural world functions quite well in a very different approach, right? Where mutual aid is actually the norm, not competition and cutthroat domination. And that can give us guidance and direction in a moment in history when we really are facing problems that are immense and a timeline that is very small, right? And I hold no sort of ideas of grandiosity that I can change the world, but I can change how I approach my relationships in my closest community. And remember that domination and competition are not the norm in the natural world in the ways that I was taught they were. And instead look for collaboration and mutual benefit, which is much more common than domination and control. And that can change how I engage in my most close relationships which changes my world. I might not be able to change the world, but I can at least change my own, my own personal communities. So it's not just about finding that on the body, although that is an important part. It's about finding that, and then that allows for something different to come in the ways that we relate to each other and the world. I absolutely love that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the systems that we have in our modern culture, systems of dominance and control and capitalism. As you said, they are things that we have imagined into being, but they're abstract imaginings that, that have no real basis in the natural world. And it's interesting to think how we could have strayed so far from our own direct experience into such an abstract world that really doesn't work for most people. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I really, I try not to get up too obsessed on that thought, but I sometimes do. Just how is it that we got here? Out of all the possibilities, how did we end up here? You know, <laughs> it's a hard question to confront because you have to really take in that we are, yeah, like you said, we are in a world that is not built to support most of us. In fact, it's kind of reliant on most of us not having enough so that a few of us can have more than we need. And you write a lot about using our embodied imagination. So I would, I'd love for you to talk about how we can use embodied imagination to escape those stories and systems of dominance and control into what you call healing futures. And also while not getting caught up in the hope for a better future and how that kind of hope is also a product of that kind of disembodied abstract imagination. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. So, you know, when I talk about that sort of shadow side of hope in the book, what I'm referring to is this way that we have, you know, I've definitely grown up with this sort of constant progress model. It'll be better. You know, it'll be better when we fulfill that New Year's resolution of losing weight or making more money or, you know, when we get the better relationship or we have the better house or we get the new car or whatever it is, it's like, you know, on the individual level. And then on the collective level, it's like, oh, it'll be better someday. Like things will be better someday. 
And I think what we are having to grapple with on a, on a world scale is that that could be true and hopefully it is true, but it might get worse before it gets better. And the shadow side of hope can be glossing over these very real issues to then sort of project our mind out onto some future. Like we'll figure it out before it gets too bad or, you know, everything will work out for the best. And while I appreciate that, I think that it can take our attention away from really necessary problems that we're facing. But what I mean by using a somatic imagination to guide us, you know, these ideas that have gotten us into some fairly big trouble, things like domination and control and supremacies of all kinds, this idea that that there would be one or a few that deserve to have control and power over many. These ideas do have an embodied experience. Like in the body, we, we can feel, we can, learn to, we can learn to recognize when we are feeling like we are entitled to control, when we are feeling like someone like has to listen to us, when we are feeling like to be right is to be good. So if I make you wrong, that makes you bad, which makes me better than you. All of these experiences live in the body. We can also use our bodies as sort of like holders of embodied memories to think back on times when we felt calm and a sense of belonging and a sense of trust and a sense of ease, even if we're finding it in seemingly disparate ways that have nothing to do with the political landscape or even with our own, you know, emotional or relational issues. But we can find those memories and then let the body feel it as an actual experience. I can feel in the book I talk about my memory of sitting with my grandfather and how that I would feel this trust and how it would, you know, sort of let my shoulders drop down my back. And I, when I think about it, I almost always sort of perceptively lean back in my seat because, and it's not too hard to figure it out when, as I share in the book, that that is related to a memory of just like most times when I would go to visit, we would sit in the living room and I would sit on his lap and we'd watch silly shows together. He died when I was five. So all of my memories of him are when I was pretty little. So I have that sort of embodied memory of what it feels like to feel safe and comfortable and protected. And when I am choosing people that I want to be close to, what I've found over, you know, I'm in my 40s now. So what I've found over 40 years is that the people who feel best in moving close to are people around whom I feel like I can rest my shoulders back, like I can lean back. Like I can soften into the moment. Like I feel this sort of safety and protection. And those are the people that I want to move closer to. But also then when inevitably conflict comes up, because if you are close enough to somebody for long enough, something's going to come up. I can notice because all of a sudden I'm feeling tight. I'm sort of pulled away. My shoulders are coming up to my ears. And I now have a map back to what that state of restful, attentive care feels like which is so different than just trying to approach it with the mind. Because my mind's going to tell me, oh, we've got to figure this out right now. We can't go to sleep until we work it out. Or I never want to talk to you again because you made me mad, right? And instead, my body is going to give me a map to how I might approach these issues with more softness and more presence, if that makes sense. Sometimes in the midst of incredible pain or loss, I don't think it's the time to try and find a map to anything. I think that that's when it's most helpful to just feel that primary and rather primal relationship between body and earth that I described earlier. And 
when I've been in the midst of intense grief, it's not so much about trying to find my way back to a different kind of emotion. It's about letting myself feel held by the bed or the actual ground underneath me so that I can at least feel myself where I am as I'm heartbroken. But if, for example, I'm having a moment of disagreement with a friend, right? Those happen. They're pretty common. I personally tend to be a bit more passive and a bit more likely to, to sort of want to soothe whatever feathers might be ruffled. And as a result, I tend to be closest to people who are a little bit more active and want to sort of like address the problem. There must be something in me that just is like hungry for that push. <laughs> so it can be a little difficult for me in approaching a conflict of some kind. Um, it can be a little difficult for me to say what is hard for me to say, you know, where and how I'm disappointed to accept responsibility, especially if I feel like it's not really fair. And I can feel myself sort of tense up. I can feel myself sort of like want to sort of shrink. And my shoulders come up to my ears. If you were sitting in the room with me right now, you'd see me doing it because I'm, I'm imagining it as I'm experiencing it, as I'm talking to you about it. And the ability to notice that is the result of a lot of therapy, but also a lot of this practice of somatic exploration. What does it feel like in my body when I am in this state of there's some fear there. There's a desire to control someone else through my own acquiescence to like make like to calm them down because I'm acting calm, etc. If instead, I use moments in my body when I have felt safe as a guide. The reason I bring up my grandpa a lot because it's like, you know, he was family. So he wasn't a perfect person. You know, he had his faults, but I also only got to know him for, you know, the very end of his very long and complicated life. So that part didn't register to me. You know, I would, I just knew him as my silly grandpa that liked to watch silly movies with me. So when I think of that sense of, you know, just an innate sense of belonging, a deep kind of comfort and how it feels in my body. Now I both have a guide to how I want to feel with the people who I'm closest with in my life. And I have a little, you know, a marker of when I'm not feeling that way. And so now I have more information that I can go into a conversation with someone who I care about, who I want to move through this conflict with and find that sense of belonging on the other side. I also have information where if it's like, if every time that I see this person, I start feeling uncomfortable, I start feeling like my, I have to shrink and like, you know, my body just doesn't have a place to rest. And, you know, they don't seem to be interested in talking and finding a way through that. It doesn't have to mean that they're a bad person, that they're wrong. It just might give me some information that these are not people I want to build relationships with. I don't have to fall into a thing of like, oh, they're awful people. But I can just be like, hey, you know what? For whatever reason, these people aren't my people. But when I've already chosen a person, right, when I have my close friends, when I have my partner, when I have my family, and I'm starting to feel this way of feeling tight, feeling constricted, feeling ill at ease. It's very helpful to me to have a reminder of what it feels like when I am at ease with them. So that at the very least, I can remind myself, hey, this is a moment. This is not necessarily the norm in this relationship. This is a moment. And I know what it feels like when we're feeling good. And so now let's see what we can do together so that we can find what's going on here. Because something's going on because I'm guessing that if I feel like this, you feel like this, right? Let's talk about it. 
And now it's a different approach to sort of soothing and tending to these important relationships, which like I said, if you're in a relationship that's actually important at some point or another, there's going to be some sort of ruffled feathers. You know, that just seems to be inevitable in close relationships. But I can find a way into the softness, even when things are feeling a little uncomfortable. My guest is Abigail Rose Clark. She's the author of this book we're talking about, Returning Home to Our Body, Reimagining the Relationship Between Our Bodies and the World. And there's a wonderful line that you repeat several times through the book, and that is feeling what we're feeling as we're feeling it and the practice of that. And that is such a simple and yet profound experiential practice that in a sense, that's what opens the door to being able to work with all of these things that, that you've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. My teacher, Patty Townsend, who, you know, I owe so much of my work to her teachings, but she would say that frequently feeling what you feel as you're feeling it is a radical act. And then we would expand upon that in the years that I've studied with her, she would expand upon that about all the different ways that we're sort of pushed to not feel, to numb ourselves out, to pretend that we don't feel the way that we do, to calm ourselves down in ways that are essentially just shoving the emotions under the surface and to instead give ourselves the space to really feel what we are feeling as we're feeling it. It, give so much it really does widen time i found and i shared what i mean by that in the book as well but it gives this sort of radical approach to being in the world where i'm willing to feel what there is to feel i'm not trying to run away from it i'm not trying to control it i'm not trying to get out of this emotion because this other emotion is better i'm instead willing to feel it and yeah it is a profoundly radical act. And it takes quite a lot of practice. I am constantly practicing. <laughs> and I, I love what you wrote about in the book of widening our experience and widening our sense of time. It's like opening up into spaciousness or creating spaciousness around our feelings so that we're not trapped or completely hijacked by them, but we're actually getting to see them in the context of a broader perspective. Yeah, exactly. It also gives us the ability to return to and access our parasympathetic nervous system after perhaps getting triggered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very helpful to have ways back to ourself after that feeling of sort of tightness and pressure that comes up when we are in a state of stress. And I love the way you talk about cells and cell membranes. And I would love for you to talk about boundaries and intimacy and what we can learn from cells and cell membranes about adapting to and being in relationship to a changing world around us. Because we've evolved over millions of years into more and more highly complex multicellular beings. So, there's something that we have learned that has helped us to not only survive, but actually to evolve into these increasingly complex multicellular and symbiotically operating beings. So again, yeah. getting back to boundaries and intimacy and what we can learn from cells and cell membranes. Absolutely. 
So this is what I mean when I say that the body can offer us incredible models. Because if I am struggling to figure out how to have healthy relationships and healthy boundaries, I find it really helpful to remember that at least on the cellular level, I already know how to do it because I am a multicellular organism. Not only do I have trillions of eukaryotic cells, meaning cells that have a nucleus, I also have as least as many, if not more, prokaryotic cells, meaning bacteria. I am an ecosystem, not just an individual organism. And I am able to exist, and you are able to exist, because these cells have developed through, you know, millions of years of evolution, have developed ways of being in close intimacy without merging into the other. Cell membranes are semi-permeable, meaning some things get in and some things get out, and they're adaptable and responsive. So they don't just statically stay there and say, nope, this is me, this is how I am, you have to figure it out, right? There are some things that are going to be absolutely steadfast about them. A nerve cell is a nerve cell, a cardiac muscle cell is a cardiac muscle cell, but they are able to adapt to their environment and they're able to live in close proximity without merging into the other. And there are also some places in the body, you know, where this doesn't say that we have to always get along because like, for example, my intestines and my heart, they are in relationship. They're in the same body. Things that affect one can affect them both but they're not actually touching and they shouldn't, <laughs> right? Like there's a big problem if they start to touch, like now you're in crisis. So it helps me remember that A, I don't have to try to get close to everyone. I'm not everyone's cup of tea and not everyone has to be mine. And that for me has been a really soothing thing to remember, you know, it, both in the ways that it reminds me that, you know, I don't have to hyper-focus on how much I don't like that person. I just get to be like, it just seems like it's a no, right? Like we're just not really, you know, on each other's groove. And when someone else decides that they're not on mine, that's okay too, right? Suddenly the the ways that that can feel like this, you know, I mean, my book just came out. Not everyone likes it. And so it's like, I can remember that the cell membrane teaches me that I don't have to, I don't have to be for everyone, right? And that's okay. I don't have to feel any kind of way about it. But then also, what it does show us is that merging, you know, I understand the spiritual sort of edict of like, we're all one. I certainly do understand it, but I feel like it's incomplete because we are all one in the sense that we are all in relationship, but we are not one. I'm not you. I don't know. And I will never know everything that there is to know about you, right? We could spend the rest of our days only sharing you know, our most intimate thoughts and secrets, and I'd still never know. And there's permission to both of us there in that. And there's also, you know, a beautiful sense of excitement and discovery, because it's like, oh, I'll never know. I'll never know everything there is to know about someone else. And that means that I can keep a sense of spaciousness, even in really close intimacy. And I can remember that And the cell membrane, the actual physiology of it and the ways that the phospholipids are, you know, the tails are nonpolar, the heads are polar, meaning the tails are impervious to water and the heads are drawn to water. So these phospholipids arrange themselves into a bilayer membrane with the heads being pulled out and in towards the water inside and outside of the cells and the tails being sort of smushed into the middle that can then easily open channels for ions and proteins to move through. It is a reminder, to me at least, that keeping parts of myself sort of impervious and sort of, you know, almost aloof in a way 
doesn't necessarily mean that I am removing the capacity for intimacy. It actually means that I am keeping a sense of spaciousness that allows for the vibrancy of difference. So I don't have to worry if I want to, you know, my partner and I have quite a lot of space built into our relationship and I love it and I love him for it. It doesn't feel like separation. It feels like permission, right? And that gives me a guide to how I might create intimacy in ways that gives me space and gives me a sense of possibility, even within the closeness of deep intimacy. Yeah, I love that too. Embodying that paradox of being a part of a whole and yet also being an individual within the whole at the same time. And earlier you mentioned that all our beliefs about everything are actually felt in our body and that the cultural systems affect each of us in very different ways, depending upon the types of bodies we inhabit and the culture we're in. Mm -hmm. could, you, could you talk about that? So our culture affects our body. You know, if we live in a sedentary culture, that's going to have an effect versus if we live in a culture that prioritizes movement. There's plenty of research highlighting that. But then culture, while race and gender have some biological markers, a lot of the ways that race and gender affect us are in the ways that our bodies are treated differently in a racist and sexist world. So I think it's really important, especially me as a white cisgender American woman, I think it's really important to acknowledge that our experiences of the world are going to be different based on the ways that the world perceives us. And that is to both highlight that there are things that I will never truly understand. You know, I can talk to my friends who grew up black in America and I can learn from them, but there's some things that I will never truly understand about their experience. And it's also important to remember that when we're having conversations around the body, that making sweeping generalized statements, if we're not carefully looking for where we might be missing the point, you know, based on our own constellation of privileges and oppressions, we can be having a conversation that doesn't land, right? Or it's doing the opposite of what we are hoping for, or it just encourages a further separation amongst these groups defined by how the culture perceives the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, creating more harm. Especially when white people think that, that our experience is the norm, that's when we can really create some pretty significant damage for sure. Exactly. You also say that if we believe life to be a struggle and our own bodies to be a struggle, then it's much harder to clearly see and dismantle the systems that artificially creates that struggle. And as you talk about that, I'd like for you to talk about the notion of how these systems artificially create that experience of struggle. Yeah. So let's talk, for example, about, you know, we're all living through a economy that is moving through rapid inflation, a housing market that is like truly insane. We are watching a massive divide growing every day between the richest and the poorest. And that creates real challenges real struggles that, you know, like I was talking earlier about how these systems are the result of imagination that have now created real effect. And that's one of them. You know, the housing market is 
It's something that was imagined and created. Stock market, same thing, but it has real effects, right? It has real effects on real people. But so if I think that life is struggle and that my body is struggle and that my body is a machine that always needs to be fixed and that I need to exert willpower over this flawed and breaking machine and that the struggles I feel are just inherent to life itself, it's going to be a lot harder for me to have an accurate, discerning take on how these systems are failing us. It's going to encourage binary thinking. Either the problem is all me or the problem is all over there. It pushes us into either or thinking. It removes the ability to hold paradox and have nuanced conversations. And we are experiencing this. And now as we move into an election year, I am frankly worried about how we're going to see that unfold, that inability to have a nuanced conversation and not fall into camps of saying, well, you're either with me or against me. But if I can instead recognize that discomfort is part of life, absolutely. And, you know, we're not guaranteed ease in every moment. And in fact, our addiction to ease, those of us in the privileged West, our addiction to ease is at the root of a lot of these ecological and economic crises. You know, oh, I want my thing to get to me in two days, so I'll just order it, right? And that's not to say that sometimes it's not like, you know, oh, well, I can either take a day off of work that I don't have to go find the thing that maybe I can find or I can just order it and it'll be here, right? It's like I don't get to have those nuanced conversations around privilege if I am unwilling to see how the situation is complex. But if I can recognize that discomfort is part of life, but these struggles that have been imposed upon me are designed, now I have a bit more space to be able to hold that complexity, I can have a better conversation. And I'm also more willing to be wrong, right? Like I'm willing to, I've had a lot of conversations with my uncle who loves to call himself a capitalist and has definitely pushed my thinking around how I think about things like the stock market. And, you know, we can get into it, but it's also really great because we're both willing to keep the relationship centered on care and learning right? He learns from me, I learn from him. So I can have more nuanced conversations. I can learn where my own biases have me making assumptions. But I can also recognize that struggle is not inherent. Discomfort is, but struggle isn't. Struggle is usually designed. And that gives me more ground to critique from, basically, and to choose where I want to put my effort into making different paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting how struggle is is kind of like getting lost, losing ourselves in that kind of an uncomfortable, you know, situation that's based on conflict. And it goes against what you were talking about, how we are actually separate beings, separate individuals, and we don't want to get lost in that. So it's kind of like there's a double-edged sword about being one with everything, that we can be one with everything in a very positive way, and we can get lost into being one with a situation that feels very uncomfortable and full of conflict. Like, it's so easy to fall into these days with our current political situation in this country. Yeah. And keeping that idea from the cell membrane close, that it's okay to have a bit of separation. In fact, there has to be a little bit of separation. And that doesn't mean that we are removing ourselves entirely 
from anything, but it allows the vibrancy to remain. So I don't have to be, mer- I don't have to be pulled completely into something. I can keep myself not separated to keep myself isolated or aloof from it, but separated to maintain a sense of distinction that I am not this. There is something here that is affecting me and that I have to engage with, but it's good to have some space from it too. And our cells understand this on an embodied level. They know to allow in things that are beneficial and to keep out things that are harmful. That the body's not infallible. It gets things wrong sometimes, right? Cancer happens, autoimmune diseases happen. So especially for any listener who might be dealing with something like cancer and autoimmune disease, I don't want to imply that the way that your cells function is the way that you function, but it just gives us a model. It gives us a model for how we might approach something with a bit of space and appreciating the space, appreciating the differentiation, you know, recognizing that we are all in relationship with each other, but I am not you, which means that I want to learn from you, right? That I have things to learn from you. A difference of opinion does not mean that we can't ever engage with each other. It doesn't mean that you're wrong or that I'm right. We have to engage in this sort of moral battle. I'm not saying that to imply that if somebody tries to say that some humans don't deserve to be treated as humans or that some humans deserve to have everything taken from them, then I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, agree to disagree because I'm not, right? That's different. But we don't have to be completely the same to be in relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to talk about how somatic observation can also be used in a very self-centered, what's in it for me way, as well as engaging and reconnecting with the world around us in a more connective way. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that's important, that's interesting for me to acknowledge is that I've been teaching somatics since 2008. That's long enough so that I have been professionally teaching somatics well before people knew what it was. They'd be like, what? (laughs) And now I'm seeing it used as a buzzword that is being used to sell everything, right? Just about everything. And it's being used as a way to lose weight, have better sex, you know, like have glowing skin, be smarter, earn more money. All of these things are being promised if you do these somatic exercises. I'm also seeing how people are conflating somatics with just the nervous system as though, you know, they'll say like, do this somatic exercise and regulate your nervous system, all these things. And it's not to say that some of these practices that are being hawked on the internet don't have value. Some of them do. And one of the things that's interesting about it is the way that the focus is usually on in these kinds of, you know, buy my thing, buy my thing. The focus is typically on what you're going to get from it, how you're going to like, you know, look better, even that you're going to feel better. I mean, I've laughed with some of my friends and colleagues about this, where I'm just like, somatic practice isn't the way to feel better. Not necessarily. If you're really doing this, you are definitely going to feel worse, at least some of the time, right? Like, in many ways, numbing out, that would be the easy choice in a culture like this one, where you're constantly being pushed to it. And facing what is there to be faced is heartbreaking, like truly. We really look at what's going on underneath the surface, both ecologically and, you know, the ways that humans are treated, the ways that animals and plants and fungi and the natural world is being treated. Things are heartbreaking when you really look. So the idea that being fully present is somehow going to make everything magically better in your life, it just is laughable to me. 
But what does happen is there is this sense of ease, similar to what we were ta- I was talking about at the very beginning with that sense of feeling supported by the earth. That means that even when things are heartbreaking, I can still feel grounded, supported, and like I belong. So that to me, well, I suppose I could say that, you know, buy my thing because it makes you feel like you belong. <laughs> it feels just like a different approach than buy my thing so you can lose some weight, buy my thing so you can have better sex, buy my thing so that you'll be irresistible, right? Like all these ways that somatics is being used to hawk what you get, right? You'll sleep better, you'll breathe better, you'll work out better, your body will look younger, all these different things. And it's like, that's great, right? Like, who doesn't want to feel better in their bodies? But it can't just be about what we get, right? It can't be the highlight of the focus. This is about being, not getting, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's like the presence of the earth represents something that's so much bigger and more profound and powerful than any of the momentary and even the ongoing crises that we're facing these days. Yeah, exactly which is something that can be really hard to swallow because it appears more and more that our very survival depends upon how we respond to these crises that we're facing. And as we observe these political systems of dominance and control that are refusing to acknowledge any sense of responsibility and the ability to actually do anything about it in any meaningful yeah. way. So that that can be really terrifying and make it really hard to trust or to think that we can find any comfort anywhere. And yet we still, we can, we actually can find great comfort in the moment just by, like for me, I, I love, it's the wrong time of year for it, but I love walking around barefoot on the earth and I love being able to lie down on the ground, in the grass, you know, it's profoundly comforting, even and especially when things are crazy. Yeah. Yeah, same. Mm-hmm. And in a powerful sense, it may be the only thing available to us in the face of all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. When I was having that conversation with my friend about, you know, why this book, it was in response to some folks thinking that it should be a book about, you know, here's how we fix these problems, right? Like, here's how, like, this is, like, that's why you write a book, is to offer some solution to some problems. And I was really struggling with the idea that, you know, it felt really painfully grandiose to think that I would have solutions to these big problems. I'm not a politician. My understanding of the intricacies of these, you know, global upheavals is better than many, but like far from expert level, right? I'm just, I'm just one person. (laughs) I'm a shy little guy that feels a lot more comfortable in the trees than I do with a lot of attention on me. So the idea that it would be, you know, this kind of like fixing of a problem felt so weird to me and false. But ultimately, what I came to in that conversation with my friend was that, you know, awe and curiosity feel better. At the very least, they feel better. They also create possibilities. Because if I'm stuck in the despair, then 
you know, what possibly can come from that. And that's not to imply that despair isn't real and it isn't valid. Like, oh my goodness, you know, the, the videos that we're witnessing coming out of Palestine right now, the despair is real, right? But being able, like finding that way back to a sense of awe and curiosity, finding that way back to a sense of belonging on a neurological level, you know, you brought out the parasympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is a part of the nervous system that really allows for our creativity to flourish. If we are feeling like there's no hope, like we are, you know, just intrinsically doomed, the parasympathetic nervous system is not going to be able to help us out with that. It's going to be all sympathetic nervous system trying to get us out of whatever it is that we perceive as a threat, right? So finding this ability to feel awe, to feel belonging, to engage with our curiosity allows for the possibility that we will find a way through this. And that's where, you know, the book, I wrote the book a year ago, or I finished the book a year ago, it, it just came out last week, but it takes about that long for a book to move through in traditional publishing. And a thing that I've been working with, especially in these last few months, is not just like moving from, you know, what I was referring to before is the shadow side of hope, and now considering this discipline of hope, where rather than using hope to sort of jump over these very real issues and be like, well, it's going to get better. It'll be okay. To instead stay firmly committed to being present with the world as it is and finding the awe and curiosity that is available to me in this moment as a way of staying present and engaged and hopeful in some sort of grounded way that there might be something better on the other side of this. If not for me, then hopefully for the little kids that I get to be, you know, my goddaughter is seven, my nibblings are, you know, between seven and one. It's like I have a lot of little children that I love and I hope experience the world as a beautiful place. I do want to feel hope for them, but in a grounded way that keeps me in my relationship and my responsibility to the world for them as well. Yeah. And that's something that our bodies are actually capable of doing. They can hold, our bodies can hold all of these different kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. It's true. I was just talking with one of my friends last night about how easy it is to fall into this belief that things are going to be awful. It's going to be hard. It's going to be like impossible. And then you do it and you're like, oh, it wasn't that hard. And it really, why was I worried about it this whole time? And that can be on like, you know, Seemingly innocuous things, like he's a carpenter, he was referring to, you know, working on a project, but it can also be about, you know, much bigger things. Am I going to have enough money to pay my bills, etc. And while, you know, those are problems that only get minimized by people who actually have financial security, right? Like, like only people who are financially very well off would think that money can't buy happiness. <laughs> Because if you are struggling to pay the bills that keep you housed and fed and safe, you know, then you realize very quickly that, that these are not small issues. And making them into something big and insurmountable is not going to help, right? It's not going to help us get through them. My guest is Abigail Rose Clark. She's the author of this book we're talking about, Returning Home to Our Body, Reimagining the Relationship Between Our Bodies and the World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio.
So this is where being present to the world as it is and feeling what we're feeling as we feel it so that we can move through, like, you know, the word emotion has motion in it. So we can move through it. I think this is where it's so important not to be stoic, right? I feel like my grandpa's generation, he was the stoic king, which I learned from my mom as I got older, that generation that lived through multiple wars, that learned from a very young age that, you know, children should be seen and not heard. And so therefore did not express right? Didn't express love, didn't express tenderness. I got the, you know, his last few years. And so he he was starting to learn that with me. I'm not saying that we should push things down, but instead be willing to move through them so that we can also increase, you know, vulnerability increases community. We can't really have community if we're not willing to be vulnerable with the people that we are truly in relationship with. If I just pretend to my friends and my partner and everyone that is important to me that I'm fine when I'm not, then I'm only isolating myself. So I have to be willing to feel what I need to feel and to feel in the presence of others and then shrink it down to its appropriate size, right? And that to me is helped by feeling the earth so completely because I am so small in comparison, right? When I lie down and look up at the sky or look up at the stars or look up at a giant tree, it's a helpful reminder that I am very small, right? That my problems can feel so big but they are very small and that helps me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. As you were saying that I could feel that in my body. Yeah. What you just said brings up a very beautiful part of what this work does, which is that when we express how we are feeling in ways that are descriptive rather than just necessarily emotive, like if I were to tell you like, Oh yeah, Tonya, I feel calm when I lie on the ground, you can relate to it in a way. But if instead I say that when I lie on the ground and look up at the sky, and I feel the immensity of the vault of the sky above me, and I feel how completely my body is held by the earth, and I feel like I am weighted in a way that allows me to expand through every single one of my cells. Now you've been invited into the experience with me. Yesterday, I was working with someone who described a sense of calm in themselves as like they described how their eyes kind of settled back into their skull and the skin around their eyes would kind of crinkle up. And I found myself doing the exact same thing and feeling that sense of like sparkling curiosity within that sensation of feeling calm. We invite other people into the experience and we also expand each other's experiences when we're vulnerable with each other about how we're feeling as we're feeling it. It allows us to really relate in that very deep way where all of a sudden now I understand how that person feels when they feel that creative sense of calm, when they feel like enlivened and with a sense of purpose. I understand it and I get to feel it too. That's a really beautiful thing that humans can offer each other. Like it's a joy, right? But we can only get it when we're willing to be vulnerable both to what we feel and then vulnerable enough to share that with someone else. Yes. And there's something that you write about a lot in your book, the soft and squishiness and fluid nature of our bodies, and also being soft about that softness. Can you talk about that? We're soft and squishy creatures, but soft is often thought of as weak in a culture that prioritizes the hard and the willful, but soft can be like water, right? Which is, you know, capable of carving canyons into rock. So being willing to be soft and squishy with ourselves and with each other, I think is a way that we access a deep and abiding strength that comes when we are once again willing to be vulnerable with each other. 
And on the flip side of that, could you talk about the hardness of the way we tend to respond to injustice as we're seeing it happening mm. with increasing frequency and with increasing consequences all around us? Because these days I find myself swinging from one extreme to the other in the hardness of my responses to instances of horrific injustice in the world and then remembering to soften from that hardness. There can be a soft ferocity and there are times when hardness is required. I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying, you know, that we should always, especially because of the ways that softness sounds like it's always passive, but there can be a softness within us, even as we are very firm in what we are denouncing completely. And this, I think, and what I'm trying to do myself, because I'm living in this too, like I haven't lived through the other side of witnessing a genocide as it's happening. I haven't lived through the complexities of being a part of the Jewish diaspora and witnessing what is happening. I haven't lived through to the other side of you know, white supremacy culture. And I certainly haven't lived through to the other side of, you know, ecological collapse and, and climate chaos because we're all living in it together. But I think if we are soft with ourselves and with each other and allow the feelings to move through us as we feel them, then that hard breaking reaction is not as likely to take us over us completely. And what I mean by that is, you know, if I have a hard and unyielding reaction to someone, which is different than saying, no, I, I will not allow you to speak like that in front of me. And I will not engage in one of these, like, you know, agree to disagree conversations. If you say that, you know, that this is how you feel about, you know, people shouldn't be treated as people. But I also have learned from, you know, talking with my white family about around issues of whiteness is that if I can cultivate a sense of softness as these hard conversations come up, then maybe we will actually find that over the course of one conversation or many, some sort of shift can occur. So that's one reason to do it. But also, I can be soft with myself as I witness through my phone the most horrific images that I would never want anyone else to ever have to see, but we're all seeing, right? If I let myself be soft in that, if I let myself really feel what I feel as I feel it, the likelihood of numbing out to it, which is a problem that at this point, you know, over 100 days in this iteration of the conflict between Palestine and Israel, you know, as well as all of the floods and fires and ecological collapse that we're witnessing, the risk is very high that we will numb out and that we won't feel anything when we see these things. And that is a very scary place to be in. But if I can be soft with it and let it break my heart, then there is a greater chance that I will be able to stay present to it even as it is continually heartbreaking rather than letting it hit me like a full forced wave to the chest and going numb in a way to essentially protect myself. You know, it's, it's essentially a defensive mechanism to go numb in the face of all of that. So it's, that's something that I am working with. You know, when I wrote this book, I didn't include any sort of timeline markers you know, I was writing this book when Australia was on fire. I was writing this book during the George Floyd protests. I was writing this book at various different moments. And I knew that if I named it, then it would seem like it was specific to that moment. And I also knew that no matter how big of a thing we were going through at the time that I was writing it, something else most likely bigger would be happening when people were actually reading it. 
and here we are and that's happening. So I am using these skills and thankful that I have them, but I'm certainly not perfect at it. But I have found that being willing to feel what I feel and feel the support the earth offers underneath me, it doesn't solve any problems, but it makes me more capable of turning towards myself and others as we face them. That makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love that as well. And you have a wonderful quote in the book from Martine Prechtel, who says, we have to love what we love more than we hate what we hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that really says it all. I will lose myself so quickly if I only focus on what I hate. And so instead, am I willing to love what I love, even as I fear its destruction, right? Am I willing to envision a future that is beautiful and work towards that, even as I'm afraid that I might never live to see it. But there's more possibility there and it feels better. It makes me an easier person to be in relationship with too. Yeah, and an easier person to be in relationship for myself as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I can love something so much that I'm unwilling to witness its destruction and idly sit by as it's destructed. It can look very similar to hating something so much that I'm unwilling to sit by and let it destruct something. But the difference is, and I think that, you know, this is important like to end on this as we enter into, you know, a wild year here in the United States. When Trump lost the election, suddenly this focal point for so much hate wasn't there anymore. And white liberals dropped the ball. And now that he's back, you know, and winning caucuses, I think that there's like a reckoning moment where it's like, oh, the thing that we hated was gone. And suddenly the energy dispersed versus loving something so much that we keep moving towards it, especially once the thing that is standing in the way or, you know, trying to destroy it goes away. So that's where... You know, I would not describe myself as a liberal because that is where I find that liberals often get it wrong than focusing on what we hate rather than on what we love. And so I think that, you know, we have reached a point where it is essential to commit ourselves to what we love, knowing that it will mean that we have to confront what we hate, but that if and when, hopefully when, but maybe if the things that stand in the way of a future that is truly healing and generative, when, if, they disappear, we are still going to keep on working towards something that is beautiful and not just be like, well, I guess we go to brunch now, right? Like that sign said that somebody held up at the Trump inauguration that kind of became indicative of the whole liberal fallacy, you know, that if if Hillary had won, we'd be at brunch right now. I think we have to really reckon with ourselves of where hating is the easier choice and working towards what we love takes a certain level of commitment that maybe some of us have never actually felt into, but it does feel better. And it also makes forward continual growth and effort more possible. And it gives us something to move forward and grow towards. So it's been wonderful to talk with you. How can people find out more about your work? Yeah, my website is my name, abigailroseclark.com. Clark has an E on the end. And there you'll find information about the book, about the somatic tarot, which you mentioned at the beginning that I've created. The Body Oracle is another deck that I've created and ways to work with me in somatic learning communities. I'll have 
you know, as I go around the country and other, hopefully other countries also talking about the book, I'll make sure that those are listed on the website as well. And if people are on Substack, I write there and I don't have a paywall. So people can find me there. It's called Bones Made of Stardust. And if people are on Instagram, I'm quite active there. Those are my two most active social media spaces. And on my website, you can also sign up to receive emails from me where I explore these ideas at greater depth. So yeah, my name dot com is <laughs> a good way for people to get in touch with me. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any more time? Because you mentioned your somatic tarot, and I'm curious how the tarot has informed your somatic experience and how it can inform ours. Yeah, I can I can share briefly about it. So I made the somatic tarot starting in 2018, and then it was my like main quarantine project as everything shut down in 2020. And right before we got on this session, I was working on on a presentation for a year-long tarot cohort that I'm leading called Luminous, where people will study with me for the year, going through the whole of the tarot. And I find it to be a really beautiful exploratory tool into the psyche and into the world itself. Rachel Pollack, who wrote A Walk Through the Forest of Souls and her more famous book, 78 Degrees of Wisdom. She's passed now, but is such an amazing teacher for me. So if people are interested in the tarot from that perspective, I would highly recommend Googling her, Rachel Pollock. But I think that it's a source of deep guidance for me when I feel a bit lost by the issues that the world is serving up. And when you really look at the stories that the tarot offers, it's such a beautiful dive into the psyche and into the spirit. So... Yeah, (laughs) that would be a whole other conversation that we could get into some other day, but it is a really lovely um, set of stories. Well, it's certainly piquing my interest right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I just did an interview with someone who wrote a book about the Tarot, and I also just did an interview with somebody who just did a, a new, very, very comprehensive translation of the I Ching, so... Oh, wonderful. Fascinating stuff. So yeah, I would love to have another conversation with you about the Tarot. So uh, we'll be in touch. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And be well. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. My guest has been Abigail Rose Clark. She's a somatic educator, writer, and artist and the creator of the Somatic Tarot and the Body Oracle Deck. She's been teaching the Embodied Life Method throughout the United States and internationally since 2014. And her new book that we've been talking about is Returning Home to Our Body, Reimagining the Relationship Between Our Bodies and the World.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>